Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Now, as if the news headlines around the world aren't alarming enough right now, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change this week published its latest report, Climate Change 2022, Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. It's a comprehensive review of the impacts of climate change and our ability to adapt to them, drawing on increased knowledge and scientific evidence since the last report in 2014. And, spoiler alert, it's unlikely to help you sleep any easier at night. I'm Paul Newman, AIA Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today I'm joined by climate campaigner Sophie Gagan to unpack the report's main findings for us. Sophie, welcome and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get into the meat of the new report, would you give us a bit of context here and, and tell us what the IPCC is and how significant its findings are? The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they provide scientific assessments for policymakers on climate change, the risks and impacts, the implications um, of temperature rise, and also puts forward adaptation and mitigation measures um, and options that can be considered. The IPCC publishes these massive reports, which are basically a synthesis of all available scientific knowledge on the matter um, every few years. And they consist of three working group reports and then a synthesis report at the end. So the first working group report of this batch was published last year um, and sounded a code red for humanity as it found that greenhouse gas emissions had caused approximately 1.1 degrees of warming and that that threshold of 1.5 degrees, that magical number, uh, is expected to be exceeded over the next 20 years. So this is the second working group report published on Monday. And it looks at the impacts and risks of climate change. Uh, the report also looks more closely at the most vulnerable and highlights the role of social justice and indigenous uh, and local knowledge in adapting to climate change. And then next up in the next few months, I believe um, the third report is due out and that one will focus on mitigation or how we can cut emissions to keep that 1.5 degrees alive. Okay, thank you for that. Oh, what, are the, what are the main impacts and risks that have been identified by the IPCC in this latest report? So this report is quite bleak. It's fa- it finds that global warming of 1.1 degrees is already severely impacting people and ecosystems everywhere. And it's already causing dangerous and widespread losses and damages despite our efforts to adapt. It, it also states that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees can greatly limit these negative impacts, but some of them are already happening and some may be irreversible. We are living in the era of loss and damage already. Um, And the report also states that the cost of climate change is rapidly increasing and will continue to increase the warmer the world becomes and the later we act. But it makes very clear that the cost of inaction is far, far greater. Some of the key risks identified are that Extreme weather is doing more harm than ever before, and the fingerprints of climate change is clear in many of these events now. And these extremes are occurring at increased frequency, duration, and intensity. The world's poorest and most vulnerable are being hit the hardest by the impacts of climate change, and climate change is threatening our ability to kind of achieve many of the sustainable development goals. The report also provides more evidence about the links between conflict and climate change and shows how climate change is contributing to humanitarian crises where climate hazards interact with high vulnerability. So it's not a happy read. It's pretty 
pretty grim. Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, in the press conference for the launch of this report, stated that it is an atlas of human suffering. However, while limiting warming to 1.5 degrees is becoming more difficult the longer we wait, the report does make clear that there's still time to avoid a lot of these very negative impacts forecast in the report, but only if we rapidly and drastically cut emissions and improve our adaptation. Thank you. And just to be clear for anyone listening, um, when you talk about the, the, the costs of climate change, we're, we're speaking about the, the impact, the, the very physical impact on people's lives, on environments, on ecosystems. We're not talking about just a you know, dollars and cents kind of impact. Yeah, I think the cost, um, it kind of covers a wide range of things. It's both the financial impacts of adaptation, mitigation um, efforts, but also, yeah, the kind of cost of the loss and damage. So that's damaged infrastructure, damaged ecosystems, damage to human life. Um, and then this report also kind of draws in some of the mental health impacts of climate change as well, which I don't think has been done before. So it is, it's not just financial, although um, a lot of it kind of does try and look at the finance of what climate change is costing us. That's quite a good political argument to act. Uh, obviously, you're the expert, so I've only really skimmed over the, the, the kind of the, the intro to the report, but I gather that heat stress and related human mortality has been highlighted there as quite a key issue. Um, how does that fit in with, with your own climate campaign work on cooling technology with your colleagues? I know that's something we've done quite a bit on in recent years. Yep, this is a huge point of relevance for our work. Um, the report states that stress and mortality due to increased temperatures and heat extremes is a key risk in many of the regions. Uh, so Africa, Europe, North America, and Australasia uh, are some that are highlighted. Um, and extreme heat in particular has resulted in increased human mortality and morbidity. And this is projected to get far, far worse in, uh, in the kind of, as the century progresses. Heat waves are happening more frequently and are amplifying urban heat islands and negatively affecting air quality. And also this increased warming, increased frequency of heat waves and droughts are hindering efforts um, of completing the sustainable development goals like zero hunger and waste for all. So obviously this is central to EIA's climate work as increased temperatures, urban heat islands, heat waves will increase the demand for and the need for cooling, which is currently provided by climate damaging equipment, using large amounts of electricity and containing super polluting refrigerant gases like hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. A rise in the use of air conditioning to adapt to these higher temperatures will exacerbate climate change even further and increase inequality as those most vulnerable will not be able to afford to stay cool. And so one of the things the report looks at is some of the adaptation measures and kind of inclusive planning to make sure that we adapt correctly to climate change. Um, and so in terms of cooling and heating, this could mean better planning and infrastructure, better building design to kind of increase the use of shade and breeze and use better materials, use cool roofs, and also better urban planning to um, reduce the heat island effect, which is made worse when like the hot air from the back of air conditioners when they're in use drives up temperature in cities. Um, more tree planting to provide shade in cities. We've also seen the use of rivers, fountains, 
open spaces, these can all sh- have all shown to decrease city temperatures as well. Um, and then to meet that remaining demand for cooling mechanically, we would need uh, super efficient equipment using natural refrigerant gases and natural refrigerants, um, which would greatly reduce the environmental impact of the cooling sector. Um, the report also highlights the need for heat health action plans um, with early warning systems and early warning and re- uh, response systems. So with the increase of heat waves and the um, kind of the more intense heat waves that we're seeing, this is going to have a devastating effect on human life and human well-being. And so we are seeing some cities already enacting these heat action plans, which are great, and more will need to follow suit. Uh, so that we can better adapt to rising temperatures and heat waves that are going to become more commonplace. And I'm right in thinking that we're not locked into this appalling sounding trajectory, are we? I mean, the technology that you're talking about is actually there. I know one of the things um, you and your colleagues have done is produce our cool and technologies guide um, to help. I believe I'm right in thinking it's to help businesses and uh, to tra- transition from these kind of damaging climate gases into more natural refrigerants, which don't have that impact. Yep, we have a cool technologies database and that kind of showcases some of the many, many options available on the market. Um, and that is highly en- highly energy efficient equipment using these natural refrigerants, which have a far, far smaller climate impact than kind of what is normally available on the market in terms of air conditioners, fridges, heat pumps. Um, and that really does show that what is available and we don't have to be locked into what we're using now there are far more options and far more environmental choices that can be made and we also have kind of international and regional regulation to phase down these harmful gases but there is a lot more that we can do and we can be a lot faster and more ambitious with that with those phase downs in in terms of what people you know we we as a species can actually do as as a a collective of societies um are there limits to what we can actually do to adapt to runaway climate change or is the sky the limit if we've got the will behind us there are very much limits and unfortunately we have already reached some of them and the more temperature rises the more limits we're going to cross the report finds that global adaptation is more urgent than previously thought and that while there has been adaptation since the last report in 2014 it's been mostly reactive, incremental, small scale, rather than systemic and transformational, which it needs to be. So our ability to adapt is increasingly limited if emissions do not rapidly decline. Um, And these limits to human adaptability are already being reached in some areas. And this is also the case for species and ecosystems, especially during extreme weather events where these limits are crossed and some of that is irreversible. Um, So yeah, additional limits will emerge with every increment of additional warming. Is it fair to, to, I know it's a bit reductive, but is it fair to say that the longer we leave it, the less we're going to be able to do about it? Yeah, very much. I think so. Um, I think that's one of the key messages in this report is that we need to act now and the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be the less resilient our ecosystems and human life is going to be, um, and the more it's going to cost. So, hyperbole aside, I mean, 
appreciate obviously it's, it's a very pressing problem because we're right in the middle of it now it's not something that's looming on the horizon it's, it's actually with us but how pressing at, at present is the need for mitigation to avoid overshooting that 1.5 degrees c temperature rise which um as you said is widely accepted as the ceiling after which climate change could start having massive and irreversible impacts yeah the focus of this report is on adaptation however while it says that adaptation is essential it also says that adaptation needs to be delivered alongside urgent emissions cuts we need without mitigation we will reach limits of adaptation far sooner and so mitigation is a huge part of this puzzle obviously the report emphasizes again and again that every fraction of a degree is dangerous and increases risk and that the projected kind of adverse impacts and losses and damages escalate with every increment of global warming. So for the 1.5 degrees, the report says that even a marginal or temporary overshoot of 1.5 degrees will have severe consequences for billions of people and ecosystems. And many of these impacts will persist even if temperatures then return back below 1.5 degrees, and many of them will be irreversible. This is especially worrying given that in the last report, the Working Group 1 report, a lot of the scenarios shown in that report for kind of our emissions trajectories included an overshoot. And it was kind of a given that that's going to happen. And now this report is showing the consequences of even a small and temporary overshoot of 1.5 degrees. So again, this has huge relevance to the work of the climate campaign here as reducing emissions from short-lived climate pollutants like methane or hydrofluorocarbons, which are those refrigerant gases, um, can quickly impact the rate of warming and bias precious time in avoiding these irreversible climate tipping points. These gases have a very fast impact on warming in the atmosphere, but also offer an opportunity um, to curb global warming in the near term, to essentially flatten the climate curve, to use an old COVID expression. Um, the magnitude and rate of climate change and the risks it brings will depend on near-term mitigation and adaptation. This is made clear in the report. And all near-term actions to limit warming to 1.5 degrees will greatly reduce the likelihood of us, of many of the impacts and losses and damages uh, laid out in the report. <laughs> but the report does say that it cannot eliminate them all. Um, but basically, I think the main message is that cutting short-lived climate pollutants is essential alongside drastic carbon dioxide emission reductions. Real mitigation is going to require both. Um, and we need to be thinking about both the short-term and the long-term and kind of the short-lived climate pollutants could buy us some time and help us avoid that overshoot scenario getting over 1.5 degrees. Like the main takeaway is that 1.5 degrees is not a safe planet and it gets even less safe with every fraction of a degree over that threshold. So we need to be taking all action that we can to avoid overshooting that limit and cutting methane and HFC emissions will be key to that. So basically there is no get out of jail free card for inaction. In fact, even if we do everything now that needs to be done, the world is still going to be a changed place as a result of what we've allowed to happen on our watch and previous generations already. Yeah, yeah very much so. I think we are now 
or closely getting to kind of damage limitation role. We've historically kind of our historical emissions have put us on this course to reach that 1.5 degrees pretty soon if we go by the working group one report and we need to really be doing everything we can to try and avoid that but if we can't avoid that then really limit how far we go over that and for how long that's what yeah there's something in human nature which we don't like to be confronted with things we don't want to have to face you know it's like doing your homework on the bus on the morning it's meant to be handed in when you're at school we, we like to just keep punting things into the long grass and wait for someone else to deal with them and i guess we're at the point where we're now in the long grass with this and there's nothing we can do to escape from our responsibilities to tackle it yeah i think the urgency the urgent need for action is really driven home in this report there is no time to waste we really need to be doing everything we can immediately because we do not want to live in the world that this report is kind of forecasting yeah i like my science fiction kept in books <laughs> when it's all theoretical <laughs> too bad <laughs> not actually outside the front door <laughs> so what does the report have to say about energy transition and um the need for us to leave you know fossil fuels behind um is, does it have any any lessons for us in that respect uh, yeah, a little. Um, on energy systems transitions, the report states the importance of renewable energy, of diversifying our um, energy generation on demand-side management and, crucially, energy efficiency, so reducing kind of the amount of energy we need to do the things we need energy to do. Um, they, in the summary for policymakers, it doesn't have a huge amount on fossil fuels, but again, the summary for policymakers goes through a very intensive two-week kind of vetting process with all countries, um, parties at IPCC. So fossil fuels can be a very political kind of uh, subject, I suppose. Um, but in the press conference, again, Antonio Guterres with the sound bites stated that coal and fossil fuels are choking humanity and that oil and gas giants are now on notice fossil fuels are a dead end for climate and economy and i think this report shows the risk of our continued dependence on fossil fuels and highlights the urgency of a just transition we cannot continue with business as usual because i mean we it's just suicide. can't it's, <laughs> it's, it's the end of it isn't it it's the end yeah. of it if we don't yeah and i think the transition away from fossil fuels needs to begin immediately and in the meantime methane emissions from this sector from the coal, oil, and gas sector need to be eliminated immediately. Um, and then with heating and cooling, uh, these systems with high energy efficiency run on renewable energy and natural refrigerants installed in energy efficient buildings will reduce the climate impact of the cooling sector significantly. So not only do we need to look at where our energy comes from, but we need to look at how we use that energy and can we use it more efficiently and can we use less to do the same stuff? So that's kind of having insulated buildings and having the most efficient products running in those buildings. Um, well, yeah, all in all, this is it's a bit. It sounds like a bit of a bedtime story for the children of the damned, doesn't it? Um, finally, um, is there any good news to be found in the IPCC's conclusions? Um, anything we can take that give us a bit of solace? I think yes, there is. I mean. It doesn't seem like it on the face of it, but I think a key part about talking about climate change is avoiding the 
absolute doom and gloom of it because if people feel that something is hopeless then that spurs inaction um and i think the last line of the report sums everything up pretty well it states the scientific evidence is unequivocal climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health any further delay in concerted global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. So while that seem, may seem very grim, and it is, it does finish by highlighting that the window of opportunity is still open. It may be closing quickly, but right now it's still open. We have time to do something. The report shows this very bleak future if we don't cut our emissions urgently and drastically but repeats throughout the report the importance of every single degree of warming, every increment. Every action we take now to limit warming will help us avoid the worst of the impacts projected in the report. Um, so it's so important for governments and companies and everyone to act now with urgency and ambition. And hopefully seeing what's forecast in this report will kind of urge that political will to act. Um, the next report will be focusing on reducing emissions and how we keep 1.5 degrees alive um, and how we minimize these risks and impacts that we can that we're going to face down the line and hopefully that one has some better news and some more hopeful news about which sectors can cut emissions quickly which emissions can be cut the fastest what we can do on methane what we can do on hfcs and other short-lived climate pollutants as well as what we can do on carbon dioxide and hopefully hopefully yeah that one paints a more optimistic picture than this one yeah so basically it's, it's a grim future but it's not one that we're absolutely committed to it's one we can choose or not choose really i mean i suppose the, uh, one of the things that I've, I, I've gained from following the work of our climate team is that there are many many options and possibilities around um, and even this week um, the UNAIR meeting um, over in nairobi which um, set out the um, the groundwork for negotiating a global plastics uh, treaty in itself is a major step towards combating things uh, like climate change, obviously, because plastics are largely made from fossil fuels and there's the huge impact of them on the environment on themselves, but also just manufacturing in the first place. And, and it's clear that there seems to be an appetite, um, at least at that level in the world, to, to begin to tackle it and address it very seriously and to start taking these measures which will curb the, um, the, the climate change that we're currently living with. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we'll choose the right way, yeah? <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, I think more and more people and policymakers and companies as well are so much more aware of the kind of the risks of climate change and their role in, in creating climate change as well. And there is a much bigger appetite to deal with it and to curb emissions given kind of reports like this that really show the urgency of action excellent well sophie thank you very much indeed for joining us today um it's, it's not been the most cheery podcast we've ever done but it's certainly enlightening <laughs> uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please watch this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work thank you for joining us and wherever you are stay safe out there <laughs>